Um, so, yes, I, as you know, we've been going through a series of Philippians, uh, one chapter per week, and I feel very lucky to be able to be talking about chapter three, because it is amazing. The first time I read it, I thought, what, what is going on? I don't, didn't really get it, but the more I've poured over it, the more I've realised it is just, it just encapsulates the whole message of Jesus, um, it's just amazing. Um, so, yes. The first question I have is, what motivates you during the school time? Um, during the writing of Philippians, Paul was objectively having a very hard time because he was in prison. Um, and the Philippians were also having a hard time being persecuted for their faith. So this letter is Paul's encouragement to them. So today we're going to talk about chapter 3, which is split into two main sections. The first half, which you can see on there, um, is where Paul explains why everything he once thought was valuable um, and all of his efforts in the past to please God were now worthless um, when he knew Jesus. But we'll come back to that later. Um, And then the second half of it um, is where Paul instructs the Philippians um, how to carry on when times are hard. Uh, And that is by forgetting everything about their former life um, and looking ahead to their future hope. So his instruction to them was this. But I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. But before we look at what Paul says the prize is, I wonder what your future hope is. What do you press on towards? What do you think happens when you die? Um, What is this heavenly prize all about? Is it something worth pressing on for when times are tough? So, for many people, all life after death looks like a variety of things. Depending on your beliefs, uh, that might be reincarnation, paradise, enlightenment, becoming a drop in the boundless ocean of the divine. And then, inside and outside church, uh, there is an understanding of the Christian heaven that goes something like this. If I'm good, when I die, my soul immediately floats up to heaven where I meet Jesus at the pearly gates. We are all hanging out together in the clouds. Everything is complete bliss. All my problems have disappeared, along with my body, and I am now a spirit, finally at rest. Maybe I'm even watching the events of the world on my heavenly projector, sending little signs to my relatives to show them that I am still there, watching over them. I wonder how similar that sounds to your idea of life after death. Um, Well, I think these images are nice, they might get you through the day, but they are essentially meaningless. They don't have a real foundation. I couldn't care less about going to heaven if that's where heaven is. Not only does it sound dreadfully boring, but it's not the kind of heavenly prize that Paul is talking about. So, where are we at now? (laughs) We all know there is something not right about this world. The pain and the suffering are too brutal to bear. Evil abounds, and even the things that have the potential to be good seem to be poisoned and disappointing. Corrupt systems remain in place, The powerful take advantage of others. The rich abuse the poor. People create constant divisions between themselves. And in your own life as well. Whether you follow Jesus or not, you wake up every day knowing that you are made for a purpose, something bigger, but you can't quite see what the point of living is. You think you have friends, but they keep letting you down. Maybe you have constant headaches, exhaustion, or more serious, a lifelong disease or disorder, cancer, no cure in sight. You feel weary and heartbroken. It's so obvious that this world needs a doctor, and in those low points, the idea of escaping into the divine nothingness is 
eternal bliss, saying goodbye to your problems does sound kind of appealing. But when you're in the park with the warmth of the sun hitting your face, hanging out with people you love, when you finally crack a big problem at work and everything is just falling into place, when you're having a weekend lion and the sun comes in through the cracks in your curtain, when you finish climbing a mountain and your body feels amazing and you've accomplished something and everything looks so beautiful, when you're hugging a loved one after not seeing them for ages. In those moments, the idea of escaping the physical world would never even cross your mind. In that moment, you are so very human and you know that it is good. The true Christian hope, the one that Paul is talking about, simultaneously answers both of these things. That which makes you delight in being alive and that which makes you wish you never had to live. So, Paul elaborates on the details of his heavenly prize here in verses 20 to 21. He says, But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So good. Um, But let's break it down. So first, it says, we are citizens of heaven. When you look at the world in despair at its brokenness, the idea of being a citizen of heaven, of not truly belonging here on earth, but instead belonging in this perfect place elsewhere, is comforting. But we have our idea of citizenship all upside down. So Philippi was a Roman colony, and it had been for some 80 years. It contained families descended from the original Roman colonists, as well as retired Roman soldiers. The Philippian colonists were proud to be Roman. They modelled their lives after how things were done in Rome as much as possible. They even worshipped Caesar as Lord. These people were not one day hoping to return to Rome. They had settled and made homes where they were. But they were trying to bring Roman life and culture into that place. And if things broke out in conflict where they were, they were not expecting to run back to Rome. They expected Caesar and his armies to come and defend them where they stood. They weren't leaving, they'd colonised. In a similar way, being a citizen of heaven is not about going off to your true home in heaven. It's about bringing heavenly life and culture into our community here on earth. It's about creating little slices of heaven on earth. It's about knowing your true Lord and King and living under his rule and authority here and now. But we'll come back to what that looks like later. So next up it says, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. Jesus, when he died and was raised from the dead, was not raised as a spirit, but raised in a resurrection body. A glorified, renewed, restored version of what his human body was. He ascended to heaven with that new body and is alive today. When Jesus resurrected from the dead in bodily form, he affirmed the goodness of creation and of our physical beings, that they are worth saving. Our souls are not the valuable part of us, it's everything, our whole being. So, then he says, and we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our saviour. Paul's hope is set on Christ's second coming. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, he said it is finished. So why is he coming again? What more could he have to do? Well, we'll answer some of that in the next verse. He says, he will take our weak, mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own. That glorified, restored body, which Jesus was the first of, he is coming to give to each person. These broken, dying bodies will be transformed into bodies that will never die. 
All the aches, pains, sicknesses and diseases will not be with you forever. Your body will not be in chains of brokenness any longer. Paul passionately explains in one of his other letters that this is in fact the whole point of the gospel. And without it, his work is meaningless. We often sing a song in church with lyrics based on death is swallowed up in victory, oh death where is your sting, which comes from the Old Testament. But in one of Paul's other letters, he says that receiving our resurrection bodies is the fulfilment of that scripture. If our future hope is leaving our bodies behind and entering heaven as a spirit forever, then death is not defeated. In fact, death has won, for we are still dead. Only when Jesus raises our bodies and transforms them into bodies that will never die has death truly been defeated. Death has no power over those whose bodies have been raised. And then, it's not just individuals who will be transformed. He says, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. At that time, Jesus will bring all things on the earth under his control. Corrupt governments, abusive systems, a dying planet, everything under the kingship of a king who is fully good, fully loving, fully knowledgeable, fully just, and fully kind. So, what next? What happens to this broken world? If we aren't jetting off to heaven to be a spirit, and we have new and improved physical bodies, what are we doing with it? And what about climate change? The answer lies in the fact that God has promised a new heaven and a new earth, or, I think more clearly, a renewed creation. In Romans, Paul says this, For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So he says, as we await with anticipation the redeemed, restored, resurrection bodies, so too does creation await its restoration. This is God's promise, to restore your heart and mind, to restore your body, to restore your community, and to restore the entire creation. So, life after death, rather than looking like a tepid, cloudy, individual, spiritual experience where we get to run away from all the issues of our life, it looks instead like this. Justice, healing, and transformation. We live as humans in a glorified, resurrection body on a renewed and restored earth. We know Christ deeply and personally. Everything wrong is put right. We live in flourishing communities of love without fear, pain, loss, or death. We work, we create, we build, we rule, and the labour of our hands is fruitful and exciting. The Lord meets our every need and more. Heaven and earth are one, and the Lord God reigns as king over it all. He who receives from the throne says, I am making everything new. <laughs> so, <laughs> it all sounds great. How do I receive it? Well, traditionally we understand going to heaven as something that happens to good people. Um, we probably put ourselves in that category. But what is a good person and how do we measure that? 
Maybe someone who follows all of God's laws. Well, of the 600 odd laws of the Torah, I certainly don't follow all of those. So perhaps I should measure myself against the Ten Commandments. They're the main ones anyway. Uh, but then I remember that I have in fact lied, stolen, cheated, been jealous, been unjustly angry, dishonored my parents, they'll tell you they are here. <laughs> I have not loved God with all my heart and I have not loved my neighbor as myself. So according to the Ten Commandments, I am not good. So what do we do? Well, we go back to the first half of the chapter. In the first half of the chapter, Paul basically says that he is a good person in every human sense of the word. He gives a resume about being the perfect Jew. Uh, but he even says that he obeyed God's law without fault. How many of us can say that? But then he goes on to say that all of his attempts at righteousness and pleasing God were worthless when he came to know Jesus. Compared to the goodness and righteousness of Jesus, his attempts at law following were worth nothing. Compared to what Jesus has done, nothing else he'd ever done in his life mattered anymore. He says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. When Jesus lived the perfect life of true goodness, died on the cross and rose from the dead, he opened the door for this eternal life to all people. Jesus said, all who follow me, who trust in my saving grace, are made right with God and will receive this gift of eternal life. Your good and bad deeds will not be measured against each other to see if they come out net positive. You will not be measured against the 600 laws of the Torah to see if you qualify as a good person. You will not even be measured against the Ten Commandments. Through faith in Christ, you are forgiven and released from everything that holds you back from experiencing a perfect relationship with God and eternal life in his kingdom. Hallelujah. So, final question if this is, so what? For Paul, right theology always leads to right living. And I believe that the knowledge about what happens when you die isn't just a pleasant idea, uh, but it should utterly transform everything about the way that you live. When Jesus came down to earth, he kick-started this transformation. He initiated little communities based on love. He said, you see this beautiful future to come? Let's start making it now. He invites us to partner with him in creating it. We live in the now and the not yet. Every day we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus, with the knowledge that we will only one day be fully transformed into that perfection when we die. In the same way, with the knowledge that the whole earth will one day be transformed into perfection, we need to live every day trying to create that now, perfecting it, living as communities who have been changed by God's love. In the present time, every time you do an act of love, every time you challenge unjust practices in your workplace, every time you work to care for God's creation, you are saying yes and amen to God's future promise of this transformed world. You're joining in with God's ultimate purposes for his world, and you can rest in the knowledge that although you, although you will not love every person on earth, 
You will not change every under system or single-handedly save the earth from the climate disaster. That the Lord God himself will do all that and more when he eventually brings about his new creation. So the challenge now is to live in anticipation of God's new world. A challenge to reimagine everything. If this thing still existed in God's new earth, what would it look like? What would your workplace look like if it was completely under God's law? Or your local council? Or your marriage? Or your communities? With God's help, we can start to bring about these changes in the now and slowly work towards that day when God himself renews and restores all things. So, as we round up today and the band comes back up, we can conclude with this. The world is broken but beautiful in many ways. Here is an invitation open to all people. When times are tough, you can look to this sure and certain hope promised to all those who follow Jesus. That which is broken will be repaired. That which is beautiful will be preserved and refined. There is future hope in which you receive a restored resurrection body in a restored and renewed creation where God dwells with his people. Eternal life, not eternal nothingness, not eternal floating as a spirit, but eternal life. Let this truth carry you through the hard days. But not just that, as you reach for that future, let it transform you and the world around you every single day. If you want to accept Jesus' invitation,